Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Vincent, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah. So, you know, I came across you by way of, uh, you know, another podcast called Reboot.io, which uh, to me is is one of the, the real gems that I've discovered on the internet recently, especially because they talk about the emotional journey of entrepreneurship, something that uh, I think you know, we don't spend a lot of time talking about or uh, is kind of almost taboo to talk about or or has been for quite some time. Uh, but on that note, can you tell us a, a bit about yourself, your your story, your journey, your background, and how that's brought you to uh, where you're at and what you're up to in the world today? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll sort of uh, temper how far back in the past I go here, but uh, I'd say, you know, in terms of my work with Reboot and the reason I was on that show... Um, it goes back to, I'd say, when I was 19 and a freshman at NC State University. I was um, a computer engineering student, and I joined the engineering um, department because I loved computers and also because when I went to a little open house, they said, you know, engineers are making 55 grand a year on average. And I said, ooh, that'd be nice. Uh, so I joined the engineering department, and um, really during that first uh, year or two, started going through a process uh, of, I guess, in retrospect, I'd call it an existential crisis or a dark night of the soul, and went from wanting to become a successful engineer to dropping out and becoming a full-time meditator. Mm -hmm. And um, the basic thing that kind of got me uh, out of the conventional path, I guess, which is probably pretty common for creatives of all sorts, is that I started having an, some unmistakable experiences of um, transcending my current experience of, of localized identity, like of a sense of being here, being this person named Vince with all of the sort of memories and stories that I have of just being that. I had an experience of, uh, several experiences of, of seeing and experiencing some vast reality that went beyond that. It, it included it, but it went beyond it at the same time. And it felt uh, fundamentally true on some level. Uh, so you could say it was a hallucination perhaps, but, but, but from my perspective and from many who experience stuff like this, it feels like you're actually discovering something that was always true. Mm. And so that, those experiences felt so compelling and so important to me that I dropped out of school to really try to find a path or a system 
that could help me deepen and stabilize those initial kind of glimpses that I'd had into this, this vast reality of wisdom and compassion that transcend the sort of personal story, the personal ego, the personal narrative, um, and yet somehow still include it. You know, the, it's not like I disappeared completely. I just disappeared for a while, <laughs> but I was still, I had to come back. Um, so that that's really what got on this sort of path of meditation, of um, exploring the mind. Uh, the Buddhist tradition uh, was the one thing I could find that had a really clear, systematic kind of uh, exploration of this territory. So I just went with it. And that led me to... Um, eventually going to Naropa University, um, which is in Boulder, Colorado. It's a Buddhist-inspired school. Um, we call it the Harvard of Buddhist schools um, because, you know, it's one of the few that exists. So, of course, it's Ivy League. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, I spent the, the next three years there kind of deepening that understanding, continuing my education. Uh, my wife really wanted me to get a degree, which I think, in retrospect, was smart. And... Uh, it's there that I met a, a whole community of conscious entrepreneurs, of people on the fringe doing meditation, starting businesses, exploring creativity in various aspects. And it was really in Boulder that I found a kind of community of peers um, that I could kind of explore all these very interesting and weird converging areas of exploration. Um, and so it was there that I got into a lot of other things uh, that eventually led me to meeting Jerry, uh, who's the host of the podcast you mentioned. And he ended up becoming a mentor and investor in the work that I've done with a project called Buddhist Geeks. And um, that sort of led me to eventually working with folks in more of a teaching or coaching capacity of taking the years of meditation and training that I'd done and sort of supporting other people in their own process of waking up to some of these more kind of uh, perennial truths about reality and then learning how to apply those realizations to life as opposed to just kind of dropping out completely, mm -hmm. uh, which I think might be useful for a time, uh, for a period of time uh, when one gets into some of this stuff. But it's really, I think, the culmination of that is to bring it back to bring it back into the world, to actually be transformed and then return in some new way to what one was doing. So that's kind of the journey I've been on, and it's also kind of an archetypal journey. It's not just my journey. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, it's been a trip. Hmm. So, you know, I want to go back to the very beginning and that moment when you hear that you know, engineers are getting paid 55K a year. So you decide that, you know, hey, I'm going to study engineering because I had a moment that was extremely similar to that. Uh, I walked into Berkeley thinking, you know what? I love writing. I love creating things. I'm going to be an English major. And I remember there was a career fair on campus. I stopped by as a freshman, not realizing that nobody hires freshmen for uh, summer internships at places like, you know, what is now Accenture. And a guy who was a recruiter there told me, yeah, he said, we don't really hire English majors. And from that point forward, every single decision I made about whatever course I took, whatever, anything that I studied was all based on whether or not I thought it would do something for me from a career, career perspective. And the truth is I did miserable in all of those classes and none of them did anything for me from a career perspective. Interesting. Uh, so I, I'm really, you know, I'd be interested in kind of hearing your perspective on uh, 
you know, how you deal with moments in your life or even, you know, if you're in something that you actually despise doing and somehow it still pays or all that. I'm just really interested in hearing your perspective on all of this uh, based on that experience of having, you know, made the decision to say, you know what, screw this. I'm experiencing existential crisis and then I want to get into the crisis itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it, you, when you're describing that, the choice to kind of choose the more practical or the pragmatic, you know, avenue, I can I can relate to that. I think that was part of my desire to to go into engineering, and then the other part was actually that I loved computers, so that that helped. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, later when I went through that crisis and I started questioning all of these things about life and what's important to me. Um, suddenly, that practical choice didn't make sense in the face of of those other insights, and so I feel like you know, for myself, I prioritize idealism. I I prioritize my ideals and kind of my deepest aspirations above the practical. And fortunately, being you know in your early twenties, it's easier to do that right <laughs> than it is later in life. Um, and so at that time, I think that choice made sense um, and. I guess depending on who the person is and where they're at in their life, you know, that kind of extreme swing of the pendulum may or may not work for people, I imagine. Hmm. Um, But it does seem like we always have to contend with or work with these two poles of the practical, the pragmatic, and the idealistic, and the kind of the deep aspirational vision and I suspect there's a place that those things meet. I, I like the term pragmatic idealism um, because it seems to kind of force those two together. Um, but it also seems like peop- that we move in a kind of pendulum swing or a spiral mm-hmm. where sometimes we're like swinging in one direction or the other. I don't know if you ended up swinging from that practical approach toward a new direction, but I've certainly found that I swing. Yeah, well, it took about 10 years to swing in the other direction, and I never <laughs> a ten swung year back swing. the other way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A 10-year swing. And then here you are podcasting. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. You know, um, what's interesting to me is, is when I hear you talk about this existential crisis, it sounds like a process of self-inquiry. And you, the other thing you talked about is sort of transcending the identity of who you knew yourself to be. And the question I have is how we might... Uh, not in a way that's debilitating, but in a way that's actually transformative, bring about our own existential crisis and conduct a process of self-inquiry that allows us to transcend our sense of identity as we know it. Does that make sense? I realize that sounded really weird. No, no. It makes perfect sense to me. I hope it made sense to the folks <laughs> listening. Um, and I'll, I'll try to answer it in a way that hopefully clarifies it if it was confusing. Um, yeah, so how to actually do that in a way that is transformative and then also not debilitating. Mm-hmm. How, to, how to go into a process of deep self-inquiry, self-investigation, self-knowledge, as uh, Socrates put it. Um, I mean, there's a lot of ways to do it. And one of the reasons I gravitated to the meditative traditions is because they really have spent thousands of years developing some of those methodologies, those methods, mm-hmm. and some of the frameworks, the conceptual frameworks and the support networks that can be used to keep it from becoming debilitating <laughs> or to keep you from going off the rails. Um, because a lot of people throughout history have gone off the rails when it comes to self-inquiry. Because in a way, this is really dangerous stuff. I yeah. mean, 
in a way, like you're playing with fire and the thing that you're burning away is your own identity. Mm. So if you do that wrong or if you do it in a way that doesn't, you know, you don't have support or you have a really bad model for what you're doing, it actually can lead to things like uh, paralytic depression, you know, being just completely paralyzed by depression. It can lead to, uh, if you have a history of mental illness, it can actually exacerbate that. Um, these are all, I'm getting all the warnings up mm-hmm. front here. Um, you know, it can actually lead to temporary periods of mental instability, um, of, of, of a lack of ability to function well in the world. Um, it did for me at times and, and I was even doing it with support. Um, I was also doing a really heavy doses of meditation, you know, like months at a time of meditating all day. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's one way you can kind of control this is by not, you know, overdosing, <laughs> um, but if you are able to work with, I think, a good container that can hold that process and you have good people around you who ideally have been through the process themselves or who know others that have, um, if you have uh, good techniques that have been reality tested by many people, um, if you have all of that and you feel a draw to this, then you know I say starting with some basic meditation techniques of just being able to still the mind of being able to calm down mm-hmm. enough to be present for more than our eight eight second attention span mm-hmm. uh, which by the way has gone down four seconds since 2000 wow. um, we're now a second beneath goldfish in terms of our <laughs> average attention span um, but if you can first start to work on increasing that I think that's a good place to start and that doesn't have a lot of destabilizing effects either mm-hmm. Um, that actually has a lot of real-world benefits and of just being able to to focus on whatever's in front of you and maintain that focus. Um, That's the first step, I think, uh, to develop that concentration, that stability of mind. And then, you know, if you imagine that that concentration of mind, that stability is like a telescope that you've been polishing the lens of, you know, that then you can take that inner telescope and you begin to use it to investigate your experience. Mm. So that's the shift from concentration to then investigation or to mindfulness. And with that, once you start doing the mindfulness experiment of actually noticing what you notice as you notice it, noticing how your subjective reality is made up, how is it constructed? What is this self that we take ourselves to be? You know, is it a thought? Is it a feeling? Is it a body sensation? Is it a combination of those things? Is it something that exists outside of those categories? Um, If you start to investigate and start to kind of pay attention, you know, moment by moment, what is arising in your experience right now, then that process is a lot like the scientific process of breaking things down into their component parts. You know, of a scientist, you imagine a scientist who's you know, studying molecules and they're breaking the molecules down and seeing, oh, those molecules are made of atoms mm-hmm. and they're bonded in these particular ways. And there are these particular rules that govern how that bonding happens and how these things work. In the same way, you can take your own well-refined attention and you can run these same experiments on your own conscious experience and see what the kind of the makeup of your consciousness is. And the reason that's useful is because we're often, so often struggle, I think, with a mistaken 
notion of who we are. And that mistaken notion is almost always too small mm. for reality. <laughs> it's like we, we think we're something really small. We think we're this small collection of thoughts and habits and behaviors that are kind of frozen in time. When the reality is those thoughts and behaviors and habits are present, but they're not frozen at all. They're completely fluid and open. And by noticing that fluidity and that openness, suddenly the self actually, our sense of self, can begin to expand, can begin to include more. And this is where the creativity part, I think, connects in with this process. Mm. Because the bigger we are, the more we can include, the more fluid and open our attention is and our awareness is, um, suddenly the more connections we can see, the more we can hold, the bigger our heart becomes the stronger we can get behind the vision of our work, whatever that is. Um, and that has a huge benefit in terms of being able to function. And it also comes with an increased sense of freedom, of not being caught or stuck on any particular experience or thought that tends to roll through our minds. It's like we don't get derailed by every thought about failure or about ourselves not being good enough you know those thoughts can come they can be felt they can be known and then they can dissolve mm -hmm. and we can see that it's a story that we keep telling ourselves that isn't always present and because it's not always present it's not completely true um, so that that can be hugely liberating and freeing to start to see that not just as an idea but as an actually lived experience that you can kind of start to rely on more. Okay, so there's a ton of stuff there. Uh, yeah. And, and, you know, I, I'd imagine unpacking this, we could probably spend a decade doing, but, uh, you know, the question I think that's going to come up for anybody, myself included, uh, is how, you know, you talked about how, you know, living this experience and, uh, you know, and I can tell you from my own attempts, I mean, I finally sat down with this app called Calm, which I'm sure you're probably familiar with. Sure. Um, and managed to just sit still for five minutes a day. And yet I don't, I'm, I'm kind of like, okay, is this really benefiting me? And also you brought up the whole idea of attention. I mean, you mentioned concentration, calm, uh, investigation and mindfulness. I'm wondering if you could give us a framework for carrying us through that process so that we could apply this on a day-to-day -day basis in some way that, uh, in some way that's accessible to the average person who doesn't have, you know, the freedom to go and, you know, basically uh, completely just bail out of society. Does yes. that make sense? It totally, totally. I mean, the bailing out of society, I mean, that's the, that's the crash course for the, you know, for the professional mind hacker. You know, that's, that's the direction you want to go if that's like your life. But, you know, for, for most people, as you say, that's not going to be either one, doable, two, you know, um, desirable or three advisable for most folks. Right. So, yeah. So, so in terms of practical, you know, starting off with that, I, I think like what you're describing of, of starting with at least a period every day where you can just stop and you can tune in to what's happening. And, and for me, I like to start real simply with the breath and the body as a place to anchor my attention because the breath and the body are really simple. Um, they're, when you're aware of your body, you're not able to spin out in thoughts to get lost in the virtual reality of your own mind because the body just holds your presence there. Mm -hmm. And then the breath is always happening. You know, we're always breathing. 
We don't need to do anything to make it happen. It's just always there. It's, it's the ultimate portable meditation device. So uh, what I would suggest as a way to start, you know, just as a way to, to, to start experiment would be to make five, ten minutes to just sit, to tune into your body. You can even do this a little now as you're listening. To let your attention drop into your body. To feel what's present. It's not all going to be pleasant. There might be some tension, some discomfort. But you can allow yourself to relax around that. And then you just feel your breath. Feel the breath breathe you. If it helps, you can feel it in your abdomen as the breath comes in and out, as it rises and falls. You can feel it in your chest as the chest rises and falls. Or you could even feel it at your nostrils as the cool breath comes in and then the warm breath comes out. So just finding a place to anchor your attention as you breathe. And then the basic instruction is when your mind wanders, because it will, because we have only an eight second attention span, when it wanders to thought, when it wanders to the past, remembering what happened to the future, planning what's next, when you start feeling overwhelmed, just notice that it's happened, that you've lost the breath, that you've become uh, entangled in these stories in the mind. And then when you notice you've wandered, simply return back to the body, back to the breath, and feel yourself breathe. Feel the sensations of breath. The expansion on the in-breath. The contraction on the out-breath. Just riding that wave of breath. Feeling it in your body, grounded. And if you just can do that for five, 10 minutes regularly, then you'll start to notice your attention become, become more stable and become more flexible. Just as doing something as simple as riding an awareness of the breath. That's really all it takes to start to see the initial benefits and the initial promise of mind training, of being Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? 
boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. To train the mind. So what I'm really interested in um, is actually sort of the byproducts of this, you know, in sort of real world practical application, like how, especially, you know, considering where I discovered you, which was on a podcast about the emotional journey of entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship. I mean, how does it how does all this help us navigate the emotional journeys of our lives and our work? Yeah, so the first thing that I found, and I think many other people find when they do this, is that when your mind is a little more stable, a little more quiet, a little more still, which it may be after you just ran that experiment, um, one thing is you're more sensitive, right? You're more aware of what's happening in your experience. You're more attuned to what's arising. So you're more attuned to your body, you're also more attuned to your emotional world, to what's actually being felt. And you're more attuned to your, th your thinking process, your thoughts. And so that awareness, first and foremost, and that sensitivity gives us the space to work with what's there, to actually see it 
and, and by seeing it, we're no longer run by it. So that's the first key thing. By, by being aware of it, we're no longer run by it. So we can begin to notice what's happening and begin to work with it in a skillful way. We can make a little more space for what we're feeling instead of just kind of rushing to the next thing or wanting to get away from what's being felt. Um, and, and by doing that, we actually let, we can let our emotional lives flow more freely through us. And when we, when we do that, um, we become much more flexible emotionally. We become much more uh, easeful with, with what's coming up, even if what's coming up is anger or frustration or sadness or grief. You know, even when it sucks, um, we have a little bit more capacity to ride those waves of difficulty. And so I think, you know, what I've noticed is an increase in resiliency and being able to deal with the ups and downs of life. And those ups and downs of life are not limited to, you know, sitting and meditating or limited to those periods when we're, um, you know, noticing what's happening. They're happening all the time. They're happening in our relationships, in our conversations. They're happening in our work life for sure. And so those capacities um, can be applied and do get applied um, to all areas of our life because we always have a mind. We always have a heart. We always are aware um, and so they naturally start to infuse and kind of permeate our uh, existence, actually. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So can you give us some things you've seen uh, in other people's lives, uh, you know, some, some specific examples of how you've seen this change people, especially in the world of entrepreneurship or creativity, um, you know, and seen people change for the better because of this? Yeah, I mean, the, some of the work that I do with Reboot um, is in what's called the CEO Boot Camp. And that's like a five-day, almost you could think of it like a, an immersive or intensive or retreat. And I've definitely seen those periods. Uh, you know, it's a collection of CEOs working at different tech startups coming together. We're doing meditation. Um, we're sort of exploring, doing self-inquiry processes. We're talking about the challenges and hardships of being an entrepreneur and being a in particular, uh, a founder, a CEO. And what, I, what I've seen from that group of folks is uh, really a kind of shift toward reprioritizing the being aspect of life um, and, and making it a higher priority, even on par with the doing aspect of like constantly you know, making things happen, executing and doing, which is you know, extremely important if you're an entrepreneur or creative. Mm-hmm. Um, without that, you're not creating anything. But um, there's this other dimension of our being that we start to get in touch with. I mean, there's a reason we're called human beings um, instead of you know, humans going around and doing stuff all the time. Um, it's because uh, there is this deeper kind of aspect of ourselves that doesn't require us to do anything to be okay. Mm-hmm. That, and, and, and everyone's felt this. Like, this is not some esoteric thing. This is just, like, what it's like when you're sitting there watching a sunset and you're just okay. It's, you know, it's, it's those moments where everything is just okay as it is. And what I've noticed is, is with that group of CEOs of, of really making more space for that, more time for that in their lives, um, prioritizing being, it seems to have the effect of... Um, of, of first just relaxing them in an overall way so that there's more space and more um, kind of um, ease 
in their minds and in their lives. And what I've noticed from that is that then there's a greater perspective. They, they seem to have a little bit more of a, of a vaster perspective on what they're doing because they're not so caught in the doing. It's like they can take, they can take a step back from the doing and rest in being and notice doing mm-hmm. and see doing. And um, I've really noticed an, a kind of widening of openness in, in people's minds that do that. And I think uh, I can't point to very specific examples of ways that's changed someone's like business strategy, for instance, because again, it's sort of happening in the background. Right. Um, it's hard to point to exactly because it's kind of something that changes every aspect of your life. But um, overall, what I've noticed is a kind of a little more of a spacious type of thinking and a spacious type of holding things. Mm-hmm that ends up having these very, sometimes very tangible and sometimes very intangible impacts on, on life. Hmm. You know, maybe the most interesting thing that uh, I caught from what you just said was this whole idea of space. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, the reason it caught my attention is, is that I was just writing about it this morning. It, you know, I realize like events in our lives, the things that we don't want, our losses, uh, our challenges, our difficulties, I mean, even sometimes the good things create space and often uh, we clutter that space. Yes. Things that are, are not good or we clutter, you know, the future with the past. Yes. Uh, yes. And I've noticed if I'm willing to just let the space be, a lot of things start to take care of themselves. Oh, I like that. I like that. Yeah. And I have to remind myself of that because I, I've I, 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 like there was a period in my life, uh, probably mid 2013 where a lot of things started going wrong but for the first time ever i said you know what let's just see what happens i'm not going to fight this and then things started going right in a way that they never had that's interesting yep yep yeah i think what you're describing it it it's so clearly related to um what we've been talking about mm-hmm. and it makes sense what you're saying and i found the same thing um when i make space for things even even when it's difficult and even when I want to rush in and fill the vacuum, uh, then then things do seem to work out better than when I rush in and try to figure everything out and feel like I have to have the answers. Yeah. <laughs> and I'd be curious, you know, in, in your experience, if this was true, because um, I think it is for a lot of people, it's that the tendency to want to fill that void, to want to clutter the space, it, it has something to do often with feeling uncomfortable with the space, feeling uncomfortable actually with not knowing what to do mm-hmm. um, and wanting to get rid of that discomfort, wanting to um, avoid the discomfort. And it's like, you know, when we watch TV to distract ourselves, it's the same kind of thing. Like we don't want to just be there and be bored or, or have to deal with our own minds. We want there to be something to fill that. Mm-hmm. And so that discomfort drives us into, you know, taking a rash action or not, not creating enough space for things to start to, to organize themselves yeah, or to reorganize themselves, you know, in us or something. <laughs> does that, does that make sense? You, oh, yeah. Can you relate to the discomfort part? Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I mean, it's, I mean, part of it is I think that, uh, there's a narrative, I think, culturally that also plays out. It's like, you know, get to work and do something and hustle. And yes. if you're not, you're just being lazy and, and incompetent and wasting time. And, uh, you know, and, and I think that that's, that's 
it's funny because I think to some degree that also hurts us. Oh, I think so too. I, I mean, I actually think that, that that societal, cultural belief structure that you're describing, it's the way that we've sort of institutionalized um, our aversion to discomfort, our aversion to being. Mm-hmm. It's actually one of the ways we shut ourselves off from the deeper wisdom that we have access to and, and make it culturally sanctioned to do that. So I think it's actually a huge problem, what you're describing. Well, it's interesting. I mean, given the, the company that you keep and, and the people that you're around, I mean, you know, tech startup CEOs, I mean, I think of all places you see this uh, coming from Silicon Valley. I mean, all you have to do is browse through Medium every day uh, and look at kind of the, you know, hustle, go for it, bust your ass sort of motivational stuff that shows up there. Yes. And I got to tell you, some of it is inspiring. And other times I feel like the laziest person in the world because I'm not doing any of it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and and yet when you what you described is when you let yourself be lazy or you let yourself have space, mm-hmm. then you started doing things. Suddenly, things came together in a way that probably no amount of hustle would have would have enabled. I imagine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you you basically are just fighting an uphill battle when you're doing that. Yeah. So, well, let's do this. Let's shift gears a little bit and uh, let's let's talk about you know what Buddhist Geeks is, where it came from, uh, you know w- what it's all about today, and uh, I- I'd love to hear more about that story. Yeah, so um, Buddhist Geeks it, it started actually when I went to Naropa University. I was um, I transferred there, and I was actually in my last semester there, and I'd met met a close friend who uh, had background as an audio engineer. And then so he had the kind of audio geeky skills. And I I had this sort of background in computer engineering and also web design that I'd continued to to kind of stay interested in and work on. So we we ended up with a few things coming together, an interest in uh, Buddhist practice, in technology, in contemporary culture. Uh, We both were at the time in our early mid-20s, so we were really interested in um, in the way that Buddhism as a tradition was changing in the 21st century, you know, in light of the internet and the information revolution that we've been going through. And we had the, the, the tech skills enough to pull off a podcast. <laughs> so uh, we were sitting and complaining actually one day at a coffee shop about uh, how we were frustrated with the, uh, you know, some of the older people in the Buddhist world and how they weren't, you know, covering certain things and how they weren't, you know, kind of shutting down certain perspectives because it didn't kind of fit with their with their models. And Instead of complaining, we decided to actually start this podcast and this uh, series of interviews where we could actually give voice to some of those things. And we could invite some of those people to share their perspectives. And we could explore some of the topics that we thought weren't getting really great coverage. Um, so fortunately, we took that you know, disappointment and, and, and turned it into a constructive avenue. And you know, we really didn't expect much to happen. This was 2006, 2007. Podcasting really was just starting to get going. And mm-hmm. Um, we had some podcasts we loved, like This Week in Tech, but there wasn't a whole lot out there yet. We didn't know how many people were listening. Um, so we expected this to be like one of our many hobby projects that kind of like was exciting in the beginning and then fizzled out. Um, but it ended up being something that people responded to really quickly and with a lot of interest. And so we felt the sort of uh, responsibility to continue it. <laughs> um, and so that's kind of how Buddhist Geek started, uh, just as a kind of, again, a, an experiment that we ran and that people responded to. And uh, over the years, it's gone from being uh, a podcast show, uh, which was you know, very much a hobby project for both of us, to becoming my full-time job in 2010, 
um, when I took over the the project and started to do some crowdfunding and also uh, organize our first in-person event, which was a conference we held in Los Angeles in 2011. And for some reason, I think this might have something to do with the whole analog and digital worlds colliding. Mm -hmm. uh, we found that as soon as we held something in person, like an actual event, that suddenly uh, the rest of the you know the rest of the world kind of became aware of us that hadn't before. Like suddenly we were, you know, uh, articles were being written up about Buddhist geeks and you know publications and things like that that had never happened before. And so that kind of took things to another level. And suddenly um, some of the stuff we'd been exploring for years suddenly became interesting on a more of a kind of mainstream cultural level like you know uh, what's the relationship between training the mind and technology you know is technology the cause of all of our problems as many people argue uh, is it the thing that's causing our attention span to go down from 12 to 8 seconds uh, or is technology something that could actually be utilized and and designed in ways that support well-being and focus and calm and clarity mm -hmm. um, and so those were things we were exploring for many years, as well as a whole host of other kind of geeky stuff. Um, but you know, it was really at that point that it became more of a mainstream conversation. And um, you know, from there, uh, it's really become also a community of practice. You know, we've we've started doing a lot of events that are more focused on practice, on meditating together, um, and we call it we call it our sangha in the cloud. And uh, Sangha is a, a sort of Buddhist term for a community of people who are practicing together who have like a shared aim. Um, so that's kind of been the focus lately and it's, uh, it's been great fun. And at the same time, uh, what I'm seeing more and more is that it's necessary to step outside of the Buddhist context and the Buddhist framework mm -hmm. to offer things more broadly to people that may not have an interest in learning that whole system um, or who may have a kind of... Uh, allergic reaction to any kind of ideological system. Um, although what's interesting about that is pretty much everything from what I can tell is an ideological system. <laughs> um, so it's hard to avoid that. But I understand why people have allergies to religion and why they have felt burned in the past by really closed-minded systems that can't see that they have limitations and that they aren't the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Um, so, you know, Lately, my focus has been much more on that aspect of things of like how to take what I've learned from these really amazing traditions of practice and translate them in ways that really resonate with people that are living in contemporary society so that it's not necessary to be a Buddhist in order to uh, have a mind that's trained and a heart that is open. Um, I don't think it's necessary at all. In fact, the Buddha wasn't a Buddhist. You know, that, that's sort of an idea that came later. He's just a person trying to, to figure some stuff out about his human experience. Hmm. So, um, you know, that's, that's kind of been the, the direction lately. And, and it's, it feels like a natural unfolding from the Buddhist Geeks uh, project. It's like, okay, the culmination of that is to kind of, again, take what's been learned and, off, and, and hopefully have something to offer back. We'll see. <laughs> Well, you know, what's interesting to me uh, is that when I look at projects on the Internet, especially hobby projects, the ones that are really, really successful always seem to be ones that sort of grow organically. Mm. Uh, they're never they're never from the people who have followed some step by step formula. 
to try and yeah. manufacture a result. Uh, which is funny because I think that takes us right back into that conversation of creating space. Yes, absolutely. And and it, and I think it, it ties back to what we were talking about before about you know what is it that motivates us to do things? Is it is it kind of practicality and just trying to kind of make ends meet, or purely, or is it a kind of pure idealism, which you know often is hard to execute on, and we end up just kind of being lost in our thoughts about how reality should be, um, or is it some some way in which we can kind of bring those energies together and like follow a vision and be inspired by something, make space, like you're saying, for for something to emerge. Um, because I think what space is so interesting for and why it's so important is because it, it, if we have space, something can emerge in that space. And it can even be something that we wouldn't expect. And if we can make room for that in our creative process, um, I do have a feeling that the stuff that is most interesting, like you're saying, is the stuff that emerges from whence we don't know. We don't know where it comes from. It, it's some combination of our own passions and skills aligning with some social interest and you know some like kind of uh, cultural interest aligning with you know and then something novel emerges that we that knocks us back even as the creatives. We go whoa, um, you know we can't even really take credit for it completely because it's not something that we conceived of by ourselves. It's something that emerged from this really complex set of conditions um, and that we made space for somehow. Hmm. Well, Vincent, this has been really, really fascinating and I'm I, uh, really glad we got a chance to have you on the show. So I want to close with one final question. Uh, what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Oh, wow. You know, when I think of unmistakable, I think of something that really stands out. And I think of ideas and ways of being that really shock the foundations or the cores of what we think we know. So I, you know, taking that, I think what makes someone unmistakable is when they've really dived in to their own process and their own journey and they've come out the other side with whatever that is b having been completely transformed and having kind of glimpsed a vision for how things might be that are different than how they are now and that they actually align themselves with that vision and try to bring it into their lives you know through what they do through their work through their way of being through how they relate you know that they become an embodiment of that vision hmm. um, that to me is something that strikes me as unmistakable. It's like when I see that, I know it. You know, I don't always like it, and I don't always agree with them, but I, I can tell there's something there. You know, that's just profound. Well, uh, I think that makes a, a beautiful way to wrap up our conversation. And I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share some of your story and your insights with our listeners. This has been fantastic. Cool. Thank you so much. It's awesome to, uh, to, to to join you in this. Yeah. And for those of you listening, we'll wrap the show with that. If you like what you heard, the greatest compliment you could give us is to share the show with a friend and let people know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Unmistakable Creative.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Acast anbefaler. Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skide trætte af alle de der podcast og forklarer meget nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lyt til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmakker. 